Hello, and welcome to Ask Dr. Dawn. The opinions expressed in this program are those of the speakers, and this is a program intended for education and entertainment. It should not be construed as a substitute for a medical consultation. So let's start out this week with a new fun fact. Microbes, that is to say bacteria, make up 25% of the immediate environment around a tumor. Some bacteria are actually living inside cancer cells as either parasites or maybe even commensals helping out their physiology. We just don't know that yet. The discovery that the individual's gut microbiome in a human influences both the success and the side effects of cancer therapies has been a huge surprise to everyone and is currently rocking the world of oncology research and therapeutics. In the next few minutes, I'm going to attempt to weave together the individual research threads to give you an idea of the web of effect and reaction that seems to be emerging from the multiple research, well, multiple research facilities all over the planet. International collaboration has never been more important, as you'll see when we begin discussing the influences of environment and diet on the whole thing. Also, artificial intelligence is making possible analysis that was literally unobtainable just a few years ago. The future, well, what will happen? Who can say? But let's dive in to what, in fact, we're talking about. I'm going to start by telling you an amazing story. Uh, Zion Levi uh, remembers how he felt when his daughter and he were poring over body scans in 2019, looking at small black dots that represent melanoma metastases and watching them shrink away and vanish through time. Now, anyone would be excited by this, but these weren't Levi's scans He didn't even know who the scans were from, but he did share an important connection with them. So let's go back about five years before Zion was in this situation. He was diagnosed with melanoma, and he was in remission thanks to a powerful immunosuppressor drug called nivolumab. Because he had responded so well to the drug with advanced melanoma reversing apparently entirely, doctors at the Sheba Medical Center in Israel asked him whether he would consider donating his stool and the microbes inside to help others who had failed to respond or whose cancer had become resistant to treatment. So he agreed to rigorous tests, blood draws, detailed questions about what he ate, mostly pizza. Uh, Levi made his donation, packed it into a cooler, called a taxi, and went to the hospital. By the way, the hospital paid the taxi bill. As with any transplant, travel time mattered a lot. The doctors wanted the sample to arrive, well, from door to door, so to speak, in less than 90 minutes. Once there, Levi's feces were tested for pathogens, diluted, homogenized, centrifuged, and sifted down to a refined sort of microbial broth that was then freeze-dried and packed into capsules. The um, enthusiasm that Levi showed for the project convinced Ben Borsi, an oncologist who was leading the study, to share the anonymized scans of uh, the recipient to, of, of his donated microbes. Today, that person, the one who received the donation, has gone more than three years without evidence of cancer and has become a donor in similar 
melanoma treatment trial therapies. It's a legacy Levi feels very good about. I'm very proud that I could save lives. I would like to do it again, he says. He may get his wish. The Israeli trial, and one led by researchers in the United States, were the first of their kind to use fecal microbial transfer, we're going to call that FMT, or fecal transfer, to prime patients for a better response to immunotherapy. These are powerful anti-cancer drugs that unleash the body's own immune system against tumors. They're called immune checkpoint inhibitors. Both of these studies were published last year in Science, and I went over them briefly, but I didn't actually, at the time, grasp the implications. And honestly, I don't think anyone outside of that very small group of people working in the field did. Of the two studies, there were about 26 people. That's not a big N. They had all previously failed to respond to immunotherapy. But after the fecal microbial transfer, they did, a lot of them, one out of three, or 33%, did respond to therapy. Even though there were only a few patients, there was a cohort in each group that overcame resistance that they already had. I have given you recently some other studies about melanoma about a month ago, and you can go back and look for those. But today we're going we're gonna to go through and pull it all together, I hope. So the next step is to work out which patients will respond and which won't and why. Today there are more than 30 fecal microbial transfer trials around the world, and some of them are run by academic laboratories and some of them by pharmaceutical companies. There's gold in them that are piles of poo. Increasingly, research is showing that the gut microbiome can have both good and bad effects on the progression of distant tumors. It can also have effects on the side effects of treatments and the ability of the immune system to pick off cancer cells. Some researchers have linked specific bacteria to beneficial effects, which maybe will point to tailored treatments, but we're also exploring the role of diet and the gut microbe diversity, as well as revealing interesting interactions between the organisms that reside in the gut and those that live in the tumors themselves. That part blows me away. Potentially, we can open up new targets for treatment simply by modifying the gut microbiome and having the information delivered by bacteria traveling, I presume, through the lymphatics to the tumors themselves. Now, you have to ask yourself, why are the tumors, why are they a magnet for bacteria? Why are the bacteria going there? And how is that not causing sepsis? I'm still scratching my head about that. Now, Borsi, the original uh, researcher that worked with Levi, has only treated 30 people, and there have been about somewhere between 50 and 100 individuals worldwide who have received this therapy. So not enough for us to really draw any conclusions, but it's really a new era. He's calling it ecological oncology, one in which a better understanding of the tumor, the host, the immune system, and the resident microbes could lead to better treatment. And those of you who are long-term listeners know how much I talk about the tumor, the immediate environment around the tumor, rather. I call it the microenvironment. There is a microbiome around the tumor. I didn't know that until I came across this study. 
Borsi's an interesting doctor. He started really getting interested in this back in 2006 before he really had, uh, I think he was a postdoc at the time. And he was hiking, finishing up medical school, maybe a postdoc, one of those simultaneous MD-PhD programs. And he was taking a hike in the woods and he was looking at burls, the tumor-like growths on trees, burls, and these are caused as a result of a plant's response to an infection. They sort of look like tumors themselves, and he started thinking about how tumors and bacteria might interact in the human body, but his colleagues were like, yeah, don't go there. Genetics is the hot field. You've got to focus on genetics. That's where the grant money is. But he ignored that, pressed ahead with his epidemiological studies that linked cancer in the microbiome and explored also how antibiotics could change cancer risk and how diet could modify gut microbes. Well, 10 years later, a picture started to emerge around 2016 that the microbiome was indeed a modifiable, let's call it a superorganism in both health and disease, and the link with cancer had begun to get attention. This was around the time that the immunotherapy drugs, the MABs and the IVs, were developed. Most of these are monoclonals. Some, Many of them are immune checkpoint inhibitors of one type or another, and they goose the immune response, but sometimes by too much, creating an inflammatory storm that can make life miserable and even potentially kill patients. And long-term, these drugs only work in about 15 to 20% of people despite a very rough ride, so we need to improve it. Now, we're going to move to my studies for just a moment. This was a 2015 study by a guy named Thomas Gajewski. He's at the University of Chicago, Illinois, and he and his colleagues showed that the balance of gut microbes in mice microbiome determined whether the animals responded to a certain type of immunotherapy, and changing the microbiome through fecal transfer made mice respond better. In 2018, three papers came out showing these same sorts of results in people with melanoma. Those are some papers I cited uh, in the last couple of months as I learned about them. Uh, These were specifically microbiome and immune checkpoint inhibitors. The presence or absence of certain key microorganisms in the gut seemed to really affect the likelihood of a response Now, meanwhile, for about the last decade, FMT has become a real thing. It's actually become part of the clinical armamentarium. It's not even experimental anymore in people with recurring infections of Clostridium difficile, a bacteria that can cause really terrible chronic diarrhea and will show up in people who've received lots of antibiotics and wiped up their microbiome. Having no good microbiome is what allows C. difficile to grow and thrive, use a lot of the food that's available, and make a lot of toxin, which makes people very sick, basically giving them a kind of cholera. Although it isn't cholera, it sure does look like it from the patient's end of things. Melanoma is a prime target because it's a common cancer and only sometimes responds well to immunotherapies. So, Really, in in stage four, as we say, we're looking at fifteen to fifteen percent of people who have a long-lasting response. By the way, Jimmy Carter, former president of the United States, didn't die young. 
although I think he was pretty good. Instead, he survived his brain mets from melanoma and uh, went has gone on to live and contribute to many aspects of world peace and, and international diplomacy uh, in subsequent years. So there was a parallel study from uh, the Hillman Cancer Center in Pennsylvania to the work that Borsi was doing, and these treated a total of 26 people. The Israeli study had 10, uh, and only three of those overcame resistance to therapy. Two were only partial. One was full. But all three of those responders were the ones who received the FMT from Zion Levy. All five of the participants who received material from a different donor failed to respond. This was a cancer survivor. So you got to find the right guy with the right poop. Okay. The U.S. trial, as I said, enrolled 16 people. It had uh, metastatic melanoma who'd progressed after immunotherapy. They had seven different donors uh, who'd had a lasting response. So these were treatment failures. And of the 16, six showed a response. Three of these had a complete response. That's more than 50% of people responding with FMT. And that study didn't seem to, I said there were seven donors, they didn't identify a specific donor who had a greater or lesser positive effect, but the study's just too underpowered to really tell us what we really want to know. And we don't know what it even means to have good donor material. Uh, We don't really know if half the time we're giving placebo in these studies. So when you see a 50% response rate, that's huge when you consider that some of those people may not even received active poop. Now, we've always thought it was about diversity, right? But Zion Levi's stool was less diverse than the other microbiome that didn't work in the Israeli study. So researchers ultimately have to understand what are the bugs that have good functional qualities that promote immunity? And we also have to figure out whether there's a variation based on the genetics or the diet of the individual, maybe even the geography, the you know the circadian rhythms. Would it be different in uh, places with a at the equator versus places where it got very very short amounts of light in the winter? Would vitamin D levels make a, a difference here? So many variables. And so much to figure out, but such a fascinating idea. Another study published in Nature Medicine in March wanted to look at the organisms specifically that were associated with response and non-response, and they're testing machine learning to see if it can match the microbiota donors with the recipients. Uh, We need to figure out whether the cancer survivors have a bad microbiome and a good immune system or a good microbiome and a bad immune system. But other work's being done in Canada, looking at FMT from donors who've not had cancer, looking to see whether that'll help people who are naive to immunotherapy, whether they can simply make it better. Obviously, there's a much greater pool of potential donors in that situation. They did 20 people with advanced melanoma, and it really worked. It really helped. 20 people... Uh, three had a complete response to immunotherapy, 13 a partial response, way better than that, 15%. Uh, three, show, three showed stable disease and didn't progress, which is already something. We're making progress here. We don't know what we're doing, but 
we know we need to keep doing it and figure out what we're doing. And I do think that machine intelligence or machine learning and the DNA tools that we now have for analysis are going to be key here. Part of the problem is it's maybe not the, the bacteria themselves. Maybe we don't want to be doing DNA analysis of the bacteria. Maybe what we need to be looking at is the metabolites that the bacteria produce. Maybe that's what's key to these successful treatments, the metabolome, as we like to call it, because, well, a bacteria can be there and be present and may even be present in high quantities, but depending on your diet, it may not be receiving the substance, the what we call substrate, that's needed uh, for it to produce the compound that actually has the beneficial effect. And then we have to think about the microbiome of the tumor itself. I said 25% of the tumor environment is made up of microbes. So their presence have the possibility to run interference, like uh, like in football, to block the anti-tumor um, immunity and the effect of the checkpoint inhibitors, or it might promote the anti-tumor uh, effect. It looks like it can do either one, depending on the bugs. And this is really amazing to me. This also is a group in Israel. Israel. The Israelis are really into the microbiome. They're doing some of the best work on this uh, of any group in the planet. And they've identified specific bacteria that are actually living inside tumor cells. They don't live inside non-tumor cells. They travel. They home on the tumors coming from the gut, the oral cavity, even the bloodstream, depending on what kind of cancer, you get different bugs going there. And we know from comparing the same patient, said one of the researchers, within a, a given patient, the tumor and the gut microbiome and the oral microbiomes, well, essentially one or the other is going to match the tumor. Now we need to figure out what chemicals are being produced. We need to eavesdrop on the signaling. What chemicals are doing it? Is it a metabolomic issue? Does substrate, does the diet matter? How much does the diet matter? Is tissue pH involved? Could the bacteria be consuming nutrients that, that are being released by the cancer, metabolic byproducts? Because, of course, the cancers produce a lot of acid because they tend to metabolize sugar differently than we do and create a lot of acid. Could the acid be attracting certain acid-loving bacteria? And are they shifting the microbiome? in a way that improves their chance of survival. For example, the way Helicobacter pylori changes the acidity of your stomach, leading to ulcers because it likes acid. The bacteria can pull our strings. We're, we're now beginning to understand that and that it's happening all the time. There was a paper in uh, 2019 Cell that looked at people with pancreatic cancer. Now, this is a bad cancer, right? We all know the survival a prognosis for that by the time it's discovered is generally very poor. They looked at two different geographic areas, Baltimore and Houston. They looked at long-term responders, people who survived more than five years, and they found that in both locations, it was how diverse the microbiome was that influenced uh, whether they survived. And here's the thing, the more diverse, the longer their survival. There have also been studies where they did, they took mice with pancreatic cancer who were long-term survivors. 
and had delayed tumor growth from therapy, and they found that if they gave them FMT, it would boost their immune cells. So that same group is now going to do this in humans. It'll be the first human trial, and it's going to analyze whether altering gut microbiomes with FMT will change the microbes in the tumor. And if so, what will that do to the tumor growth? But diet, now that's the area that's least studied and obviously the hardest to control. And one of the doctors said the question he's most commonly asked by people who receive FMT for C. difficile is what they should eat after the procedure. Well, this is what you should be eating anyway, folks. Minimize processed food, he says, and emphasize a plant-based diet because beneficial gut microbes like complex carbohydrates. Whole grains, as in not ground-up grains, mixed with vegetables, the so-called Buddha bowls sort of approach, is probably the ideal diet if you don't want to get cancer. A little bit of meat here and there doesn't hurt. A little dairy here and there doesn't hurt. But you want to be careful not to shift your microbiome long-term. You need those fiber foods to be the mainstay. And unfortunately, one of the things that processing does to food, even simple processing, like turning wheat into pasta, it gets rid of a lot of the fiber. So there's a study that just got published in 2021 showing people with melanoma who ate high-fiber diets are more likely to respond favorably to immunotherapy, but over-the-counter probiotics were associated with worse outcomes. So you see, I love probiotics. I love the concept, but I see them as a second-line therapy to basically act as a temporary ground cover when you've taken antibiotics or had to do something drastic. I see them as a therapeutic tool, but not the same way I see a multivitamin, which I would advise people to take every day. You need the fiber, you need the prebiotics, the food that the bacteria eat is what's really going to help maintain a healthy microbiome. Most of the stuff we want you to have in your microbiome, we can't grow and put in a capsule yet. And the laws about uh, all of that, you know, freeze dry, pulverize, filter, test, and then put in, put the poop in capsules, we're a long way from being able to provide that stuff commercially or even therapeutically at the quantities that are necessary. We need to figure out how to grow this. So another true story. Amon Shaney was diagnosed with malignant melanoma in 2017. So he volunteered for a clinical trial testing a new immune checkpoint inhibitor, pembrolizumab, ABIB, right? An antibody that activates a protein that cancer cells use to hide from immune cells. Almost immediately, horrible side effects took hold. Arthritis limited all movement. He had to quit playing tennis. He got diarrhea severe diarrhea, sent him to the hospital six times for IV fluids. And the Mets, well, they shrank, but they didn't disappear. So it wasn't a nice time, said Eamon Shaney. He's an oral surgeon in Israel, by the way. But he said, this is reality. I'm going to do it. Then a year and a half ago, his doctor said, well, let's try FMT before your next round of immunotherapy. And Shaney said, oh, If I went through all this agony, the last thing in the earth I have in mind is to swallow somebody else's feces. But he looked at the literature, signed the consent form, and joined the trial. 
This all happened during the chaos of COVID-19. He had one course of the FMT through colonoscopy, and that was followed up with two more doses, each one of 32 capsules, each capsule the size of an olive, and he had to swallow them in one setting, all 32 capsules. He named them Zeppelins. Then he went back to immunotherapy. His last PET scan this May was clean, and his side effects were minimized. He didn't have the horrible effects that time. And here's what really pulls the story together, I think, in a nice way. That fecal transplant he got, that came from the lone first responder in the first Israeli trial, the one that Zion uh, Levi donated. Well, the second generation recipient, I should say, of Levi's donation. He got the poop from the guy who got the poop from the guy. That's huge. If we can amplify the effect and turn survivors into donors, maybe we don't need to know as much as it seems like we need to know to get this to work. And at least we have the ability to build a track record and a history. It's going to be hard to find suitable donors if, if we only one out of 40 people are suitable because they might have other infections. But it's an amazing thing to think that this may be the be possible because of the convergent of several rapidly developing technologies. And the way things are going between our ability to analyze, our machine learning, and our ability to engineer bacteria to create drugs, we may be looking at, as one of the researchers said, the dawning of the age of oncologic ecosystem therapeutics. I'm very excited. I want to go to an email. I had a little accumulation of emails, as you might expect. I'm going to start with this one from George in Lake Forest. LPA writes George. Hello, Dr. Don. LP, parentheses, a, lowercase a's seems to be all the rage lately. I'm reading that it's more important than the rest of the metrics on the lipid panel, with ApoB coming in as a close second. My doctor doesn't even order it on my test. I had my LPA tested on my own, and it was 197, which is sky high. The rest of my lipids look okay. Am I in serious trouble? I haven't had the ApoB done yet, but I'm going to. What's your opinion of these two lipid metrics? Thank you, and I love the show. Well, George, let me start by just telling you how we found this stuff, particularly LPA, is we found it because we didn't have a good reason why certain people with negative family histories and normal cholesterol and no risk factors like smoking or hypertension were having massive heart attacks. There's a small group of people. So we went looking for biomarkers. One of the things we found in the process was the fact that calcium deposits in the heart can occur with a normal cholesterol. And if you see these calcium deposits, which are found on CT scan, this is called a coronary calcium score, if you see them, you should worry because you have increased risk regardless of how good your cholesterol is. And if you have a high calcium score, this is one of those people that I sit them down and I say, okay, you're going to take massive amounts of CoQ10 and you're going to take a statin because that'll actually reduce your risk. We know that. We've studied it. We don't understand why. But let's talk about what LPA 
does. It's a small lipoprotein, and it's largely determined by heredity. I want to say that again. It's it's hereditary. It's very hard to shift it. I'll tell you how you can shift it in a minute, but it's hard to do. And it makes the blood more likely to clot. So if you think about what a heart attack is, it's a situation where you have some plaque, the plaque cracks, the platelets jump on the crack and block form a clot rapidly that blocks the whole artery. Downstream, the blood isn't getting there, oxygen isn't getting there, and glucose isn't getting there, and the tick-tock starts on the clock, and if you don't get that perfusion restored within a reasonable amount of time, that heart muscle's going to die. When it actually dies, we call it a myocardial infarction. Now we have this new term, acute coronary syndrome, that we as far as epidemiologically, we treat them as equivalent, but we've gotten so good at getting people in and getting that blockage cleared quickly using various forms of balloon therapy, PTCA, um, we're able to avoid the heart damage. This has happened within the 30 years that I've been practicing medicine, and it's been a joy to see that we had to invent a new word because we were doing so well with heart attacks, which were just a major and continue to be a major killer. But now they're killing people when they're older rather than when they're young most of the time. What can Now, what can you do about your LPA? Assuming good cholesterol, good family history, non-smoking, you, know, you want to reduce all of your other risk factors because that's key. Secondly... You can try niacin. I found this out by doing a search and found it at the Linus Pauling Institute, which I do recommend going and seeing, checking out their library. They have some really interesting, very science-based stuff about heart disease and cancer that you won't find anywhere else because it's dedicated to nutritional therapy and nutraceutical therapy, stuff that can't be patented. So... Linus won a couple of Nobel Prizes. He was a smart man. He was a smart man all the way through his life. And I think he was right to a certain extent about vitamin C, but we're not going to talk about that. You can take niacin, plain old niacin, and it'll work. It'll bring down that LPA. The problem is getting the dose high enough and tolerating it because niacin causes flushing. So it's a big deal to get enough niacin on board. I've done this on multiple patients with high LPAs. The no-flush niacin doesn't work, unfortunately. Um, I haven't tried the stuff that's sold as NMN. I, I don't think there's any data on whether that works either. But what does work is plain old cheap niacin. It comes in 100 milligram pills, little tiny pill, little tiny capsules. And you have to work up from the 100s to the 500s and then manage about six of the 500s a day. I've had some people respond at 1,500 milligrams, but just about everybody has responded at 3,000 milligrams, but it's it's causing flushing. It's, ca- it's causing uncomfortable symptoms. Sometimes people get diarrhea. You kind of have to sneak up on it. 100 three times a day with food for a week, then 200. When you start getting cramping and diarrhea, stop. Wait, keep, it, keep on that dose for for about a month, 
you'll grow tolerance, then you can take more, and you can gradually climb your way up. I have a lot of long-term patients, and I would say it'll take you 6 to 12 months to get to that dose, and you can normalize it. We do, none of our drugs work, or at least none of the drugs that have been studied for this, and that includes statins, work to get it down. Can using anticoagulants like high-dose fish oil or maybe even one of the factor 10 inhibitors? Would aspirin help? All good questions, not established one way or another. We do know the mechanism that is procoagulation. So checking and make sure that you don't have other procoagulant factors, that would mean any family history of unprovoked blood clots in the legs or in the lungs, you might want to get yourself tested for procoagulant factors and really, really work hard on that LPA if you've also got other things going on. Now back to your other question about ApoB. I think ApoB uh, should be thought of as a indirect marker for the size of your small cholesterol particles. Uh, best analogy I heard came from um, Mark Houston, this lovely uh, alternative cardiologist out of uh, out of Texas. Love that accent. Anyway, Mark's a smart man. His books are completely impenetrable. However, he came up with a great analogy. He said, "You know, think about." Applebee like a license plate, all right? Now, you can have a big old semi-truck carrying, pulling two containers, right? And that thing has one license plate on it. And that license plate is going to be counted as one Applebee. On the other hand, you could have the same tonnage of Volkswagens stacked on top of each other on the truck scale, and you'd have, I don't know, 30 license plates. So if you think that the vehicle is your low-density lipoprotein, and what you're asking is, do I have small particles or big particles? Do I have Volkswagens or semis? If you've got a high LDL and it's all semis, in other words, your Applebee is low, you're in pretty good shape. You'll probably be fine. If you have a high Applebee, well, then you've got Volkswagens, and that means you've got small particles, and those are the ones that can cause plaque. So given that you've already got this procoagulant thing, yeah, you should get the ApoB tested. I would recommend getting an NMR. This is basically an MRI of your blood where they look directly at the LDL particles. They tell you exactly what how big they are, how many you've got, both LabCorp and uh, Quest do this test. I believe that the cash price is around 150 bucks from LabCorp, uh, in that ballpark anyway, under 200 It's worth considering under the circumstances. So, George, I hope that you found that useful. I thought I picked you out of a bunch of email because I haven't really discussed this and thought my audience would find it interesting. Uh, Aileen, hello, Aileen, I think I've got you on the air. Yeah, Thanks hi. for receiving me. Um, I have cataracts, but the doctor said not yet, not ready, and even though I, I'm seeing difficulty even with my new reading glasses as the cataracts grow, and I was just wondering if you knew any more information about cataracts and disposing of them or putting up with them. Well, okay, let's start with, um, what you know, cataracts are clouding of the lens, which we, when we're born, they're very clear. And as we age, ultraviolet light damages 
the substance of the lens of our eyes, which is actually tiny little transparent cells. It's really kind of amazing. But uh, the reason that he says your cataract isn't ready yet is that it's too soft to remove in one piece. So it's a, it's a little bit like clay, or I, I do a lot of work in ceramics. And so clay when clay is soft, you can't really move it without blowing the shape. If you've carved, you know, if you've gotten the face just right or the shape just right, you prop it up so it doesn't slump from gravity and you wait and let, let it harden up. Because if you try to move it while it's still really soft, it'll just flop all over the place. That's how the cataract is right now. So if they went in there and tried to remove it, they would do a lot of damage trying to scoop it out. It wouldn't just pop out like it's supposed to, like it does. You make a little slit in the surface covering and give it a little squeeze and out comes the cataract and you grab it and it's done. It's a very, very quick, easy, safe surgery if you wait until the cataract is what they call mature or ripe. So that's what that's what's going on here is your doctor wants you to wait for that to happen. And then the other uh, thing in terms of your question, which was a two-part question, is, well, now while I'm waiting and I understand why I have to wait and why it's important, what can I do? And the first thing is you really need to use a lot of light and you need to play around with polarized lenses that are not sunglasses, because polarized lenses can help with the glare of the cataract. So uh, you can get polarization on a pair of glasses, and I recommend you try it. You may be able to order some clear polarized glasses online, but that's a strategy that can reduce some of the distortion. It won't help you with reading, but it'll certainly help you at night and dealing with glare. As far as reading's concerned, good readers... Uh, blowing up, if you're using a screen, blowing up the text, almost all software will now let you use large type. There are large type books. You have to make the letters bigger until such time as your cataract ripens, and then you will have the wonderful experience to look forward to of waking up and opening your eyes and singing, I can see clearly now the cataract's gone. And I know that that will be a great moment for you. This one from an anonymous writer from Sunnyvale. Dear Dr. Don, the subject is peanuts. I recently went to an acupuncturist who had a generic list of foods to eat and foods to avoid in his office. Peanuts were on the avoid list. What's your perspective about peanuts and peanut butter consumption from a TCM perspective or otherwise? That is to say, concerns about potential aflatoxins and peanut butter widespread on the Internet. Uh, okay, Anonymous, let me start with the toxins. Peanuts definitely do support a mold that can produce a toxin called aflatoxin, which is a neurotoxin. And grain in general can get these neurotoxic molds growing. There was a disease called St. Vitus dance in the Middle Ages that is thought to have been related to uh, toxins in, I believe it's rye, growing on the surface of grains uh, in silos and things that were a little bit damp. You Basically, with life and with microorganisms, if the environment, if there's a food source and the environment's favorable, something's going to grow there. 
and it'll probably try to grab all the territory and keep other things from going there unless they are helpful in terms of helping create you know, some sort of coral reef type micro environment. It's just astonishing what these, these things which have been around on the planet longer than we have for the most part can do. Anyway, getting back to the peanuts, when we move into the TCM perspective, um, I'm surprised that he had like a one-size-fits-all list. That's a very un-TCM thing to do. So in uh, Chinese medicine, peanuts, foods in general, will have characteristics. They'll either be hot or cold, uh, dry or damp. Those are the the two main uh, characteristics that we think about in reference to food. And so peanuts are both hot and damp. So they nourish the blood and they nourish the lungs. So if a person had a dry cough, for example, or they were anemic or had uh, other issues that would be related to quote-unquote blood stagnation, you might give that to them as long as they didn't have an, as long as their issue wasn't an, a heat issue because you're going to heat them up and you want to give them something cooling and damp in that case. So hot and damp, peanuts nourish the blood and the lungs. But here's why you don't give them to everyone. First, top of the list, uh, hot and damp foods in Chinese medicine are thought to worsen pain. They're also thought to worsen heaviness in the body. These are both seen as damp conditions. Well, pain can also be hot. Uh, Brain fog and yeast are two other things that would be contraindications for using peanuts. So I hope that answers your question about the why, not know it, not having done an acupuncture analysis on you. I have no idea what your uh, con- uh, constitution is and whether it would be appropriate or not appropriate for you to eat peanuts. But now that you know what to look for, uh, as it swelling, uh, heaviness, pain, uh, the other changes that I listed there, like brain fog, you could try try yourself to see if you feel that the peanuts worsen any of those. That would be the TCM test. And again, part of the reason we have such a hard time validating tra- traditional Chinese medicine scientifically is because when we do science, we want everybody to be the same. We want to make one little change and and that's the same change to everybody and have some kind of fake thing that looks like the change but isn't, which is why, you know, placebo, sugar pill, it's really hard to do placebo acupuncture, but that's another talk. Uh, but the bottom line is you can't, You it's so hard. You'd have to have a whole bunch of people who had constitutions that were damp and hot to do your intervention. And then even then, there'd be other factors which would cause you to do different interventions for different individuals. So you can never really, by the standards of proof, you can never really prove this stuff. That doesn't mean it's not accurate. It doesn't mean it doesn't work. It just means you can't prove it by the standards of proof of the scientific method, which really lends itself well to drugs. And given that the pharmaceutical industry has funded medical education for over 100 years and largely influenced the curriculum, you know, like the big states influence the textbooks. Well, the big pharma influences the textbooks in medical school and has for over 100 years. So as you might expect, the placebo-controlled trial or style of trial is the only valid gold standard 
for medical proof, meaning that only pharmaceuticals need apply. All this talk about the microbiome, though, and where we are in microbiome research, and particularly with respect to the cancers and uh, the chemotherapy combination, it really reminded me of the early days of blood transfusion. So we've got about 10 minutes, so I'm going to give you a, a little journey of uh, fun facts about blood transfusion, which is now rather, I wouldn't call it routine. You don't really want to have one, but uh, then again, there are some people who do want to have them because they think they have a rejuvenating effect and they scientifically very well may. First of all, let's go back to the Incas. Yes, blood transfusions were actually invented in the New World by the Incas. It's been documented as early as the 1500s. The conquistadors witnessed blood transfusions when they arrived in the 1500s. And it was a fairly standard therapy in the Andes. Part of the reason it worked is it was an inbred population that just happened to have type O blood. So most of the people who were going to be receiving a transfusion from someone else in the Andean culture were getting blood that already matched. There was much less risk than blood transfusions among other populations. And so when the conquistadors came back and reported blood transfusions, and of course that kind of got out and Europe was a place where there was a lot of communication and travel across countries. So, yeah, people were really interested back in the early 1660s uh, in blood and circulatory function. So along around 1665, a doctor named Richard Lower picked a small dog, medium dog, opened up its jugular vein and pulled off a lot of blood until the dog was lying there panting and looking like it was going to die. Then he stopped and he took a big dog, a mastiff actually, and opened up the cervical artery in the neck and connected it to the first dog and pumped the blood into the first dog and sewed up the jugular vein, sewed up the artery. Uh, By the way, you can ligate the cervical artery and there's plenty of, uh, let's say, cross circulation so that you probably didn't even kill the mastiff, not that they would have cared back then. But uh, he went and did this in front of the Royal Society of London and got it published. And it was, it's the first documented blood transfusion from animal to animal. First um, human to uh, animal to human was done in France in 1667, yeah, just about enough time for the paper to make its way over there. He transfused the blood of a sheep into a 15-year-old boy who survived. He later did another transfusion into a laborer from a sheep. Both of them really probably got fairly small amounts of blood, uh, and they didn't die. The third patient was a Swedish baron, uh, Gustav Bonde, who got two transfusion and died immediately after the second transfusion. Then another guy got transfusions with uh, cow's blood, and he died on the third transfusion. What's going on here is that they're exposed to the blood the first time. They don't have a big allergic response. The second time and the third time, however, they've made antibodies to that blood, and they get the antibody reaction, which is clumping of the red blood cells. 
the antibodies jump onto those foreign red blood cells, make them sticky, and gather them into clumps. The body pulls those clumps out of the bloodstream before they cause an infarct and destroys them. But in the process, the red blood cells leak hemoglobin into the bloodstream. Free hemoglobin is toxic to the kidneys. So off we go. Human blood starts again in the first decade of the 20th century. There's a couple of successful transfusions during the 1800s. My favorite one, actually, is this guy, Blundell, who used the patient's husband as a donor. Uh, He did about 10 transfusions over about five years, published his results. About half of them, the people survived and benefited. And uh, he invented a bunch of instruments and made a lot of money. And some blood transfusions were done for hemophilia successfully. Uh, As I said, my uh, favorite one is actually a very famous person, Surgeon William Stewart Halstead, who's the inventor of the mastectomy. He lived from 1852 to 1922. And he performed one of the first blood transfusions in the United States. He was a scholarly physician and very important doctor very important to medical history. Uh, So his sister had just given birth. She was having a postpartum hemorrhage. They was called to come and see her. He found her moribund and almost dead. So he pulled blood out of his own arm, transfused it into his sister, uh, and then operated on her, stopped the bleeding, and the blood transfusion saved her. So uh, children don't try this at home, but wow, what an amazing story. The rip-roaring, rollicking days of early medicine. But we're here again, right? Blood transfusions really, really got its bump uh, after the discovery of blood typing. Uh, This was where we found that we have essentially four different blood types, A, B, O, and AB. And these are genetically determined. You get an allele from each parent, so that's why you could be an AA or an AB uh, or a BB, and those determine what your body will accept. Unfortunately, the blood antigens that we carry as humans are in our diet, so most of us become sensitized against other people's blood, so we're already going to have a bad reaction from a transfusion. There's a lot more to say about blood transfusion, but I'm going to spare you and not tell you about it. I think that we could put ourselves at about 1910 when we talk about fecal microbial transfer. I think the analogy is clear. Sometimes it works. Sometimes it doesn't. There are probably markers that we haven't identified that will make all the difference in the survivability and the success of this. They remain to be identified. It's science waiting to happen. Well, that's about all for this week's podcast. Please go to AskDrDawn.com for news about our future plans. Or follow my tweets at at AskDRDawn. For now, this is Dr. Dawn saying so long and stay healthy. Ask Dr. Dawn is brought to you by Jiva Media. Production and editing by Charles Bansky. Music by John Scoville.